So Romans 13 gives us a challenge in government. It says to obey those who are in authority over you. And yes, amen. Obey those who are in authority over you. In America, who then is the authority? We the people are. Ultimately, we fall under the authority of God. But we are the ones who elect representatives who are supposed to um, enact laws that are founded on biblical principles. Okay? That was the founding philosophy of our government. If you say that you have no voice, if you say that your voice doesn't matter, if you say that we should not even be talking about this in, in church, then I would just lovingly encourage you to read your Bible. Um, the Bible is filled with people civically engaging the government. And I, I talked at length on this. I, okay, so hello, my name is Matthew, and I do not point people to my sermons, but hello, my name is Matthew. I want to point you to a sermon that I preached um, because I'm just not that guy, but I want to tell you about a sermon that I preached in the Gospel of Mark where we, we found a guy by the name of John the Baptist. You remember this guy? He got beheaded. Y'all know why he got beheaded? Because he civically engaged the king. He told the king, what you are doing is evil and wicked. And that rubbed the king's wife the wrong way. And y'all know don't make no woman mad. The, the Bible says in Proverbs, it's better to be on a stormy roof than to be in a house that is with a rageful woman. Matthew didn't write that. The Bible wrote that. And all the husbands should have said amen right there because y'all know what I'm talking about. That woman got mad and she had him killed because John the Baptist said, I'm going to civically engage you and I'm going to call you out on your issues. When did the church become silent on calling out those who are supposed to be representing us on our issues? We got to call them out. And if they're not legislating from a biblical standpoint, then we, the people have to stand up and say, you got to go. Because that is our civic duty. That is us engaging culture. Well, we just shouldn't engage in politics. Okay, well, well, what about Paul in Philippians? You know what got him killed? Politically engaging Caesar. Because he said to Caesar, excuse me, sir, you're not king. Jesus is king. How did that go well for Paul. Well, it didn't go well for him. I mean, he was in prison converting Roman soldiers, right? I mean, this is pretty cool. He's in prison engaging Roman soldiers. They're being converted. And, and, and if he were in America, most of the Church of America would have just told him to do what? Shh. We, we don't do that here. We don't engage. We don't politically engage with anybody. And so we, the people, we have an obligation to let our voices heard. And how we do that is we, what does the Bible say about key issues that are on the ballot? And we base our vote, not on our personal preferences, not based off of who is the least evil, right? Hey, I've done that, but maybe we should cast our vote instead of saying who's the lesser of the evil, who is the one who is going to lessen the evil with their legislation? So that perhaps is a better perspective of this. And I just want to encourage you to use your voice. Notice what I'm not saying. I'm not telling you how to vote. 
I mean, I'm telling you to vote from a biblical standpoint, but you've got to study your Bible. You've got to engage culturally and, and listen to what people are saying. You've got to do the work on your own. And for me, the top things that I, that I look at that, that God is passionate about is care and compassion. He's, he's passionate about life, the imago day, that we are image bearers of our creator. And those are the big issues that we have got to be um, focused on. And, and there are so many more issues, but I ain't got time for that because I got to get into the word of God. So I work for an organization also that is a political organization, if you haven't noticed. Um, it is called My Faith Votes, and we engage with low propensity voters, and we try to get them to engage, get off their apathy, and instead of complaining about, oh, Lord, the world's just going to, you know, hell in a handbasket, well, do something. Like, we live in a country where we can do something. So tomorrow night, we are hosting an online prayer event where we're just going to spend some time communing with God, praying to the Father, God, your will be done. God, give Christians boldness. And, and, and that's not my word. That's the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians, that we would have boldness in our speech when we are engaging culture. So there's a QR screen that you can snap and, and just join us uh, live on there. We'll be talking about a couple of hot topics and give you a biblical perspective. That's the biggest thing we like to do with our organization is not just try to engage people, get people to engage, but let's give a biblical perspective on issues and things that we are facing as a country. That's my spiel. Mark chapter eight, verse 22. I'm just reading the room, see how y'all doing. Making sure nobody passed out or walked out or throwing something at me. And this isn't new. Like, I, I've preached this stuff from the word of God. Like, when it talks about people engaging, like, this, this, is, this is where we are now. We, we have to stop being apathetic. And we have to stand up for the truth and for what is right. It is loving your neighbor. That's what this is all about. Mark chapter 8, we're going to totally switch gears. Or some of you are probably breathing a sigh of relief. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles that are paperback out there in the hallway for you. Or you can just download it on your screen. Or you just view it on this giant screen behind me. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out to the village. And when he had, this is good stuff, guys. When he had spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly and he sent him on his home saying, do not even enter the village. Let us pray over the reading of God's holy word this morning. God, thank you that you have brought us here this morning. Thank you that we have been given this authority to go proclaim the euangelion, the, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is king, not Caesar. Jesus Christ is king, not our politicians. Thank you, God, that we have the boldness to go out and proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us 
eyes to see clearly who you are, that when we leave this room, we'll say, look, behold, Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. We can't get so familiar with texts like this, miracles uh, like this, that, that where we get to a point where we're just kind of overlooking the reality and the, 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 the just immense miracle that this is, and especially in the era of human history that they are in. This is first century. This is, they ain't a hospital in every city. In this particular era of town, diseases were rampant among people. Lifespan was half of what it is today. There was all types of issues, diseases, via birth defects or via some kind of, um, there's just, there's not like hand sanitizing stations everywhere you walk around in Israel. In the first century, there, there isn't modern day medicine. Now, there were some concoctions that these people would put together that would make you laugh, but there wasn't any type of modern day medicine that these people would have to heal something, especially to the tune of blindness. No cure for anything. And in this particular um, context and blindness. This is very interesting, and I don't want us to miss this. In fact, uh, receiving sight is kind of a theme throughout the Bible. In fact, if you remember when John the Baptist is introduced into the Gospels, John the Baptist, uh, uh, he, he sends out some of his followers to, to go and find Jesus because he's in jail, because he he was talking to the king and he's in jail. And he's like, hey, hey, I need you to go and make sure we have the right Jesus, right? When Jesus, John the Baptist sees Jesus, he cries out that this is the Lamb of God who is here to take away the sins of the world. But some things have got him questioning. He's in prison. Why am I in prison? I thought you were the, you, you were the Messiah. You're the, you're the one who's supposed to like come and like take over the world. And so John the Baptist is in prison and he sends out his disciples. He said, go find Jesus and, and make sure we got the right guy. And Jesus tells his disciples, uh, John the Baptist disciples, they, they go to him and say, are you really the Christ? Or, or do, are we supposed to look for someone else? Our teacher, John, he He's wanting to know, and Jesus responds to him in such an interesting way, and he tells them, tell John that uh, the blind will receive their sight. Tell John that the blind will receive his sight. Blind people were usually outcasts in society. They were what we would say they were on the margins of society. In fact, they had a pretty poor theology about why people uh, were blind. If you recall in John's gospel in chapter nine, Jesus heals a blind man and um, the Pharisees find this guy and they're like, who's, did you, you met Jesus, he healed you. And he's like, I, I, don't, I don't know Jesus. All I know is that I was once blind and, and now I see. The disciples, they catch wind of this and, and they go to and they have this conversation and they're like, well, was it his sin or was it his parents' sin that caused the blindness? 
That's, that's kind of a poor theology of, of why we suffer. They're, they're attributing their theology to the theology of, if you remember back to the story of Job, Remember the, the people, his friends come to him and they're like, the reason why you're going through all this trouble is because you got sin. Or, or maybe that has nothing to do with it. Maybe you were just born with this disease. Their theology is that sin caused this blindness. Their theology is that they were accursed from God, that God found fit to blind them and put this curse on them. That was the damning doctrines that these people were believing in their day. And so they have, and that would be true of any, any deformity, any kind of defect, any disease. They just believe that you are diseased because you have done something really bad. You are blind because you are sinning or, or you are blind because your parents were just jerks. And, and so God's going to curse you uh, for the sins of your parents now, Jesus is in Bethsaida, and Bethsaida means the house of fishermen. In kind of a similar uh, play of words on Bethlehem, the house of bread. And so Bethsaida means this is the house of fishermen. And if you remember, Bethsaida is where Jesus fed 5,000 men, which if we're not counting women and children in that count, then it's likely up to 15, 20,000 people that Jesus feeds. Bethsaida had a high exposure of who Jesus is and his miraculous power. And so Jesus shows up in town. Now, if you remember, Bethsaida is the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. And so if they're in town, you know, they got family here. So, so when's going to catch that Jesus, the miracle worker, is among us. I see his disciples. Where's Jesus at? The, the dude who can, can make people receive their sight, he's back in town. So, so they take this man to Jesus and they want Jesus to touch him. I've commented and elaborated this a lot about Jesus touching people. Um, and that kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? Um, anyway, but this is an amazing, like we cannot overlook, and I can't comment on it enough about how Jesus, the rabbi, would touch people when he healed them. There's so much significance in that because rabbis thought they were unclean. Pharisees had extra biblical laws that you, no, we don't go around the nasty blind people. We don't go around the deaf people, the mute people, because they're probably accursed from God. And so if we touch them, then we're unclean. And then my house is unclean. And then I got to go clean out everybody. And then all my sheep run. And like everything becomes unclean. If I'm just around these unclean, blind, deaf, mute, leprosy people. Jesus gives us a staggering view of God. That, that God is not distant. That, that God is not a God who is just hiding behind the planets, wanting you just to figure it out yourself. That, that God is not a God who is distant and absent from your present reality. Jesus touching and healing these people is a sign to us and an encouragement to us that Jesus Christ is here with us in our mess 
and our current situations in our present reality. He's not distant. He's not far off. And he's not like laughing as you go through trauma, like, ha, 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 if you would have done it the better way, then you wouldn't have been going through that. Like, that's just not the God that we serve. Jesus, in his deity, comes and displays to the people, you want to know the Father? You look at me. I want to show you what the Father is like. That he would stoop on a lower level of the outcast and touch them. And, and not only that, so he takes the blind man by the hand. In verse 23, he brought them out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, he did what no self-respecting religious leader would do by spitting in his hands or spitting on this guy's eyes, right? This is weird, right? Anybody else not read this story? And you're just like, does not anybody see that spitting in a man's eyes, isn't there a better way to heal Jesus? Don't you ask that when you see something like this? Like Jesus, the time he made mud pies, it's like slapped it in the guy's face. Like, surely there's a better way. Surely there's a better way of using your saliva. Bro, we got COVID around. We don't need your saliva, okay? Jesus spits in this guy's eyes. I don't really understand the full significance other than I just know this is not some magical concoction that Jesus likes to like, I'm going to come up and conjure up this spell with my spit. That's not what Jesus is doing. This is a display for everyone to see of a transfer of his power unto this man. That, that the Messiah, Jesus, would transfer his power from his body unto this man so that he would receive his sight. And he asked them a question. Do you see anything? Anybody ever read uh, Jesus ever asking an other individual a, a question after he heals them? No. This is the only time in the Gospels when Jesus performs like some miraculous sign that he actually asks them, are you healed? Can you see? Isn't that interesting? Why, why is Jesus asking the dude if he can see, if Jesus knows he's batting at a thousand? Like he, he's, he's got like a thousand and no record so far, right? Jesus hasn't like performed any partial miracles. All right, there hasn't been like Lazarus partially getting up out of the dead. All right, lame crippled man, not like partially coming back and walking. I remember the last miracle we went through, like the deaf and the dumb man, like not only did Jesus uh, like heal him and heal his mouth, but he was able to understand his language and speak without some speech therapist coming on, right? It wouldn't like, like Peter coming on, like Peter, I need you, can you teach this dude how to speak? He couldn't be able to like mutter words. No, Jesus gave him a complete healing. And all of a sudden, Jesus heals this man's eyes. And he, and he asked him the question, can you partially, like, can you see? And the guy only has partial vision. What, what are we to make of this? Is Jesus like at the edge of his ministry and just like, you know what? I, I think I'm just like running out of gas. And I've only just got like a few more superpowers and, you know, I'm just kind of spent. I'm tired. 
No, that's not what's happening at all. It's so important to understand hermeneutics, the, the study of Scripture, like what is Scripture saying, the context of Scripture. Remember what Jesus just told his disciples a couple weeks ago. He rebuked them, and he told them, and he quoted from Isaiah, and he said, you have eyes, but you do not see. These disciples have been around Jesus, like for a couple years, They've been on like um, seminary 101, like hands on with the Messiah. And yet they still just saw him dimly. Yet they still didn't have this realization of who Jesus really is. Jesus is using this brother as a sermon illustration pointing to these disciples and saying, you're him. You partially see. You don't see clearly yet. You just partially see. So the man, he looks up and, and, and he regains his sight and just not in complete focus yet. It's a sermon illustration to these disciples. You, you're him right now. Like, you see me, but yet you don't see me. And so he touches his eyes again. And this is the only time in the gospel that Jesus does this. Every healing miracle that Jesus performs brings them back to perfection, completion. No partial healings. This is not like TV healers right? Look, your leg grew. No, I think they stretched it out or they got a chiropractor, okay? No, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do fake healings. He does real stuff that brings them back to absolute perfection. This man will gain his perfect sight, 20-20 vision. But why two steps? R.C. Sprawl says, it is as if though this two-staged healing Jesus was saying to the disciples had begun to see dimly, they were not in total darkness as the pagans were. Their eyes had beheld many of the marvelous things of Christ, but they had not yet seen clearly. If they had been asked to describe Jesus, they may have said, well, in effect, I, I see a mighty oak tree walking around us, but I do not really fully understand the full measure of, his, of who he is. Here again, Jesus is using this as a sermon illustration. And we know this because right after this, Peter finally gets it. He finally, he finally sees. Up until this point, Peter's been the guy who, who's like, I'll, I'll walk on water. Why am I walking on water? I'm sinking. I'm dying. Partial vision of who Jesus is. And next week we'll discover, Peter, Jesus asked him, hey, y'all, who, who's everybody saying that I am? What, what they talking about over there? What y'all hearing on the social? What, what, what they tweeting about me over there in the, over there in the Galilee? Peter finally has eyes to fully see, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the living God in flesh, incarnate. Peter finally sees. And then, G 
Jesus heals this guy. Guy's like, ooh, I can see. Praise the Lord. And Jesus tells him one thing, go home. Now go home. Now I don't, I don't recommend seeing things beyond the text, but sometimes I wonder, you know, this blind guy, he's been blind. If he goes home, like, like what kind of homecoming was that? Right? You think about like this guy had been blind and, and so maybe he had kids, maybe he didn't, but you know, kids, they're going to like try to, or, or somebody's going to try to trick you, you know? Like if you're blind and you're eating something good, that person will be like, what you eating? I ain't eating nothing. Well, okay, he can't see. And then imagine like this guy, he goes home and he's like, I, I was blind, I'm, I can see now. Imagine like the family, the friends that are around him in this one. This is staggering. And Jesus says, go home. Just a few things from this passage. This passage reveals our need for spiritual sight. The scriptures are clear that all are born spiritually blind. Like this is, this is the condition of, of, of humankind. That we are not born with eyes to see the majesty of Jesus. We are born blind. In fact, the, the writer of Ephesians, Paul would say that you, you are dead in your sins. Blindness is a significance in the New Testament. Relating to those who have not spiritually seen Jesus for who he really is yet. And none of us have, none of us has the means to gaining sight for ourselves. It's just a gift of God through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. How can you receive your eyes to see? Can you muster up a good sales pitch? Jesus, if you give me eyes to see, you sign on this dotted line. I'll be your new PR agency. I'll make you look better, more attractive, more palatable to culture. Because some of those things in the word of God, they're a little offensive. And so let's take those things out. So you go up and you make your pitch to God. And he's like, what? No, you don't, you, don't, you don't make the sales pitch to Jesus to give you eyes to see. You don't, you don't dust yourself off. You don't clean yourself off. You're like, hey, gee, I'm, I'm, I'm good now. I'm better. I'm off the crack. I'm off, off the drugs. I'm off the alcohol. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I'm, I'm not doing bad things. I'm not cheating. I'm not lying anymore. And Jesus is like, oh, congratulations. Boom, you have sight. No, that's not how you get sight. Is it you being good? Is it like you doing things to achieve your level of success? And then Jesus is like, oh, favor on you. Here's your sight. Then, then what is it? How do you gain this sight? You don't do anything. How freeing that is. That's the gospel. That in my blindness, Jesus comes to me as I am and gives me eyes to see. Didn't ask for it. Wasn't even just minding my own business. And bam, instantaneously, Jesus saves you. He gives you sight to see. Psalm 146 verse 8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteousness. Who is the Lord giving us sight to see? 
Who is it? Who is the psalmist? Hundreds of years prior to Jesus even walking on the face of the planet. Who is the Lord here? Who gives eyes to see? What, do you want to take a stab at it? It's Jesus. By the way, if I ask questions, nine out of ten times, answers Jesus. Who gives you sight? Who is the Lord that the psalmist is writing about? The Lord gives us eyes to see. Jesus is the one who gives us. He is the one in the psalmist where the psalmist is talking hundreds of years before Jesus even arrives into Israel. Jesus is the one who gives us sight to see the majesty and glory and beauty of Jesus and who he is. Jesus does. He is the one who gives us eyes to see. Jesus is the one who makes blind eyes able to see him for who he really is. He is talked about all through the Old Testament as being the one who reveals our sight. He is the breath of life in Genesis. He is the Passover lamb. He is our high priest. He is a fire by day and by night. He is the morning star. He is the prince of peace that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 9. He is the one with healing on his wings in the book of Malachi and the gospels. He is who Peter finally realizes who he is, the Christ, the Messiah in Galatians. He is the one who rids us of the curse of sin in Colossians. He was the active agent in creation that through him and by him and for him all things were made. And in Revelation, he is our prince of peace. He is the first and the last. He is our alpha and he is our omega. He is the one who gives you sight to see. And it is not you. It is not your deeds. It is not your works. It is not you achieving success. It is God in his infinite grace. God in his infinite mercy who gives you the gift of faith to see Jesus for who he really is. This also reveals our common calling that we have. As we consider this miracle, we should be reminded of the need to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We can't open the blind eyes. You can't open the blind eyes, but it is our job to announce the message of the one who has come to give us eyes to see Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of his glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we are here to be a witness to the light of Christ In Jude, verse 23, it says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy and fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Why? Because if Jesus has given us eyes to see, wouldn't we want to be the ones who are snatching these people from darkness? I mean, that's... (laughs) You ever snatched your kid up? Oh, y'all the holy, righteous... Okay, we got some unsanctified folk up in here. (laughs) <laughs> that was Jude 123. You know, you snatch your kids. I'd be, I'd be snatching them up when they're when they being ugly. There we are. Okay. 
We're all, it's a safe space. Think what Jude is talking about here. Like, grab them, snatch them out of there. You were, that road of destruction will kill you and damn your soul. Why would we do this? Why would we want to snatch somebody up? All right, please don't go physically snatching people, okay? I'm not advocating for violence. Because God has given you eyes to see. This is also revealing an ongoing gaining of sight. I think this is interesting. This man had a little work to do. He could partially see these disciples. Again, sermon illustrated. Partially see. Isn't that us sometimes? In fact, 1 Corinthians 13.9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up a childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but when face to face, now I know in part that I shall know fully, even when as I have been fully known. Such a powerful passage that right now the state of where we are is that there are some things that we just see dimly. You know what this is called? What theologians would call this? Sanctification. It, it is a process that, that all of us who, are, who have been born by the blood of Jesus, like born again through Christ, like, like listen to me carefully. Like sometimes we can look at people who are saved and we're like, well, I'm just frustrated at you because you're not at the level that I'm at. As if like you are the arbiter of keeping up the standards of what total spiritualism is supposed to be. but we are all on a, on a journey together that some of you are new to it. Some of us have been in it for decades. And you know what? I've been in this thing for decades. I've been, I've been doing ministry for a long time, and yet there are still things that I understand I see dimly as the disciples, as this guy. But, but, but one day, one day, I will stand before the king. And the things that I only had partial vision to will fade away because I will know him fully as he knows me fully right now. What a powerful testament that is. That for some of you who have been floundering in your faith, I just can't believe God would love me. I can't believe that Jesus would want to save me. I can't believe that, you know, I'm, I, I can't like let go of these things. I can't let go of this, this issue and this, this thing. Listen, one day, it won't be a problem. It, 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 it won't be a problem. I, I had problems that I was dealing with 20 years ago. They're not a problem anymore. Problems that I dealt with 15 years ago, they're not a problem anymore. Problems that I, I, I dealt with a couple years ago, they're not a problem. But, but now I have more problems but I know that I'll grow more from those problems and there won't be a problem anymore. That's growing in our sanctification, growing in the grace of God. I want us to move into communion this morning.